Hello. Oh, thank you for going quiet. I appreciate that. <laughs> Welcome to uh, Thinking on Sunday. Uh, who has not been here before? Just to check. Well, so who's not out of a lot of you? Welcome. Hello. Um, who's uh, out of you? Have you not been to Conway Hall before? Okay, that's fine. So a lot of you know Conway Hall is a, a home of ethical thought and free thinking. Um, we are just coming up to an important anniversary. But I can't remember what it is for the life of me. Maybe a member can help me out with that. Um, we are basically a home of uh, um, ethical thought and, as I said, free thinking. Uh, this is a sort of continuation of our talks that have been, hit, been going since before this building opened, um, where we just explore some of those ideas. Um, it can be political um, or society or science or just something really to broaden everyone's understanding of the world and hopefully feel more compassionate about it. With that in mind, it's uh, really, really pleased to introduce uh, Shane O'Mara. Uh, Shane is a, I'm going to really discreetly do this and hope you don't notice. Shane O'Mara is a professor, Shane O'Mara, is a professor of uh, experimental brain research and a welcome senior investigator at Trinity College Dublin. His interests include the brain system support, supporting learning, memory, and cognition, and the brain systems affected by stress, depression, motivating, applying brain and behavioral science to organizations and business. Um, and this way of looking at behavior and how the brain responds and works while we're doing stuff has turned into the book that is available at the back and the subject of this talk, In Praise of Walking, the new science of how we walk and why it's good for us. Um, so with very great pleasure, please welcome Professor Shane O'Mara. So thank you all, and thank you for coming out on, a, a, it's not quite wet, but a slightly glum uh, Sunday here in London, but it's, nonetheless, it's wonderful, and wonderful to be in this uh, amazing venue. Uh, and it's great to see so many people interested in walking, which uh, uh, is really just fabulous. Okay, well, let, let's uh, get started then. So um, what I want to do is start with, you'll all recognize the Ministry for Silly Walks. Uh, if you don't, you should. Um, and there's a great quote at the start, uh, which is from... Uh, the anthropologist John Napier, and he says something which is both true and false in one sentence. Uh, human walking is a risky business, this is true, and without split-second timing, man would fall flat on his face. In fact, with each step he takes, he teeters on the edge of catastrophe. All of those things are true, but yet they are false because you have all walked here today um, without stumbling and falling flat on your face. So there's a, an interesting paradox that we're going to explore over the next three quarters of an hour or so. Um, but let's start way back in time. And a natural question is, is uh, where did walking evolve? Uh, where uh, did the first creatures who wanted to walk come from? And we usually have the prejudice, because we're land-dwelling creatures, of thinking that walking evolved on land. And that's not true. Um, and we know this from very, very recent uh, genomic studies, uh, which have only been conducted over about the last uh, couple of years. So if we look in the sea for a moment, uh, there are lots and lots of bottom dwellers, uh, so-called benthic creatures, who uh, dwell on the ocean floor and who walk. So this is the rosy-lipped batfish. I don't know if you can see, but it has uh, pectoral fins here, and it walks using these pectoral fins along the, uh, the sea floor. And you can see that it's adapted from the top against predators, so it's hard to distinguish from the top. And then there's a, another wonderful creature. This is a sea pig. Any of you ever seen this? They live in ocean trenches. 
and uh, they walk as well on these odd little uh, legs they have they, and they scavenge, uh, they love uh, whale meat and all sorts of other things. So the question is, if there are creatures which have evolved to walk under the, the water, uh, what's the relationship between those creatures and creatures that walk on land like ourselves? So on, the, on your left, uh, this is the ventral view or the underneath view of a skate, a little small fish and it's illuminated from below, and you can see that it's walking using its hind legs uh, along a glass surface. And on the right, you have mice. Uh, they're land dwellers, <laughs> and uh, they walk on four legs on land. <laughs> and they're very different in a way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're, they're uh, warm-blooded creatures, and they have four legs. But the question is, is there any genetic relationship between these two very, very different species? Uh, in terms of the uh, genes that control the expression of the, of the hips in the skate and uh, the hips in the, uh, uh, in the mouse. And we can answer questions like this now. Uh, and we can do it very, very well. We don't need to get into the technicalities here. But suffice it to say that in the fish, they have hips which are articulated. Ah, that's much better. Thank you. And uh, they have muscles that are uh, uh, built into those hips that allow them to push their legs against the, uh, the ground. And these are controlled by a set of genes known as the Hox genes. So these control the articulation of segments uh, in the body. And the mouse has exactly the same ones, um, except they're doubled. Uh, you've got an extra one because you've got uh, forelimbs as well as hind limbs. Um, and these creatures are separated in geological time by something that's almost unimaginable, about 420 million years uh, to the last common ancestor. So the, the necessary conclusion, I think, is that the genes that control and regulate walking actually appeared under the water first. And it was only later, with the evolution of amphibians, that uh, movement happened at water margins onto the land. Now, what happened where the land is concerned? Well, we have very little evidence of the first creatures that uh, made their way onto uh, uh, dry land. Um, the very first creatures that walked on four limbs were almost certainly amphibians, um, and they're called tetrapods, because the, the evidence that we have of them is not fossil evidence of the tetrapod itself. What we have is something different. We have uh, a trace fossil known as a, a tetrapod trackway. And there are only three of these in the world. Um, there's one on the island next door, to the island next door. Uh, this is uh, Valencia Island, which is off the coast of County Kerry. And there's one there. There's one in Poland. And there's one in Brazil. And this is what they look like. These are dried out riverbeds, sedimentary rock. And uh, you can see the footprints very, very clearly. This is the one in County Kerry. Um, and you can calculate what the animal must have weighed, what its body length was like, and the pattern of movement it must have made. And you can see that it undulates as it walks. Uh, this tetrapod trackway has been dated to about 380 million years ago by uh, carbon dating. Um, so as I said, there's very little by way of fossil evidence, um, <coughs> but there are these wonderful uh, trace fossils uh, which arise in, in uh, different locations. If you go to visit this one, you'll see that it's fractured, uh, that uh, one piece has fallen off onto the left. And all we can do really is speculate about what 
this animal was doing. Was it ambling in the sunshine? Was it tracking an insect? Uh, was it a, trying to escape from a predator? We don't know, but we do know it existed, and uh, we do know that uh, it is uh, uh, ambled along here at some point, and we humans came along and discovered it in 1990. Now, humans do something unusual. Um, uh, up to about 14 months or 12 months of age, uh, we crawl on four limbs, and this is a really, really stable walking position. Uh, if you fall when you're on four limbs, you haven't got far to go. But at about 12 months, 13 months of age, uh, the motor programs uh, that control walking start to kick in. And uh, humans, or toddlers, infants, start to pull themselves up, and they start to amble about. And they do something, it, and you have to think about how peculiar this is. You're going from an inherently stable position to an inherently unstable position. And it takes about a year uh, for an infant to make that transition. Um, you don't have to be taught how to do it. All you need is the space within which to learn how to do it. And how do we do it? Well, this is how we do it. Uh, very, very beautiful paper by Karen Adolph's group. And everything you need to know is in the title. Uh, how do you learn to walk? You make thousands of steps a day, and you have dozens of falls per day. How do we know this? Well, what you do is you bring the child to a laboratory. This is a little hard to see, <laughs> I'm afraid. But uh, on the, uh, the top right, uh, you have a play laboratory. The child is tracked uh, in three dimensions as it walks around. There's a gate mat. There's a whole lot of other things. And on the bottom is the trajectory uh, of an infant uh, during 10 minutes of play, uh, which is really, really quite remarkable. And uh, if you measure the walking steps and the number of falls, what you find is this very simple conclusion. During this period, 12-month-olds to 19-month-olds average 2,368 steps per hour uh, and 17 falls, as anybody who's looked after a child who's learning to walk uh, will know. And of course, you have no memory of this locomotor experience. Um, and uh, this experience tells us why the effort to build robots that can walk has been so difficult, because uh, you learn to walk across very many different surfaces. And during the learning to walk, you're interaction with the world, with your caregivers and with others changes fundamentally because your hands are now free and your head, instead of pointing down or pointing at an angle, is now upright and your head is properly mobile. So the way we walk is really, really quite remarkable. Now, rough walking. So if you imagine you're an adult and you're walking on a surface like this, this is the kind of thing humans can do really, really easily. I hope you can all see this. This guy is wearing a camera on his head uh, it's measuring where his eyes are looking, and uh, he's wearing uh, infrared reflectors so we can measure uh, the gait that he's undertaking. And you can see that the surface, the terrain he's walking on, is, is uh, one that you have to pay attention to. Humans can do this with great facility. We can actually probably do this more easily than almost any other species, and we can do it for extended periods of time with great ease. And you can see this, quite remarkable. He's got a mobile laboratory on his back. Now, watch what happens when we ask the question, what is it that you're doing when you're doing that? This is what happens. You start to walk, you cast your eye out by about two meters, and you flicker back. And you engage in this flicker forward, flicker back. And in that second, you make the decision that the place that you're going to put your foot is stable, and that you can place your weight on it just by looking at the visual appearance. And we do this 
with really, really great facility. And we do this quite rapidly. And of course, humans can run surfaces like this as well. Uh, again, something that other species find very, very hard uh, to do and certainly cannot do in a bipedal posture, posture with uh, any uh, great facility. Now, here we have a, a walking robot. And the natural question is, can it walk in a straight line? And uh, of course, it might be drunk. And the officer might ask you to walk in a straight line. And uh, the robot replies, why not? Uh, or the, the, the officer replies, why not? And the answer is because of science. Um, and the question is, do people walk in straight lines, or do they deviate from straight lines when they cannot see where they're going? And uh, we have a, a great answer to this from a, a paper published a couple of years ago, uh, where people are asked to walk in the desert at, during the day and at night with cloud cover present and cloud cover absent, and to walk in forests during the day and at night, again, with cloud cover present or not. And what you find, in the absence of cloud cover, people are very good at walking in straight lines in places that they've never been to before, but they walk at a consistent angle to the position of the sun. When there's cloud cover present, at about 20 to 80 meters after you start to walk, you double back on yourself. And it doesn't matter whether you're left-footed or right-footed. Um, you will turn back on your own path. We do indeed walk on circles. And if you take people blindfolded to uh, uh, an airfield where you've got lots and lots of space, and you get them to walk, just look at the middle one here. This is somebody who's blindfolded and walking. And on average, you walk about 20 meters, 30 meters, and you turn in a slow circle. And people are not aware that they do this. Uh, and this tells us something very important about our walking that unconsciously it's recalibrated regularly by input from the visual world or some other form of input that tells us what direction uh, we're going in. And if it happens to be the sun in a featureless desert, what we will do is deviate according to the passage of the sun during the course of the day, uh, rather than keeping a true compass direction, which is why, of course, people get lost in the desert and we invented compasses. Now, is walking good for you? Um, in my book, I suggest yes. I'm just going to pick on one piece of evidence here, which is a, 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 a lovely study conducted in Iowa. Uh, and the study title tells you all you need to know. Uh, it's, of course, in psychologists' jargon. Walking facilitates positive affect, even when expecting the opposite. So what they did in this study was uh, get people to come in and uh, engage in a, a, a judgment task about the beauty of buildings around Iowa City. And uh, they either gave them pictures to look at, and they had them rate how they were feeling before looking at the pictures, and rate how they were feeling after they looked at the pictures. Or they said they would bring them to walk to look at the buildings, and got them to rate how they felt before the walk to the buildings and afterwards. And they were never told, of course, that this was uh, uh, the purpose of the study, was to figure out whether incidental walking made you feel better. And the answer is yes, it does. Uh, people who go for a small walk to do some other job feel much better when the walking happens, even if they're not expecting it, and it's an incidental aspect of what you're doing. And again, I think we kind of know this. Um, being up and about is much more enjoyable than sitting at your desk judging the beauty of, of pictures. And in a twist in this study, what they did was they asked people to rate how much they hated walking. And uh, hence the 
phrase, even when expecting the opposite. And even people who dislike walking, um, it's uh, on the right over there, uh, felt much better for having done a short incidental walk, even if they expected to feel bad as a result of having gone for that walk. So it's good for you even when you expect the opposite. Now, creative walking. Um, the artists of the, year, of the ages have known getting out for a walk, standing up, moving around is a, a great way to facilitate walking. And this is something that has been unknown to neuroscience and psychology until the last couple of years, uh, pitifully, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Now, uh, this is Sir William Rowan Hamilton, uh, who was a mathematician at Trinity College where I work. And he invented uh, quaternions, uh, which are a very interesting and weird way of doing mathematics. In, in ordinary mathematics, 3 plus 4 equals 4 plus 3. In quaternions, that's not true. Uh, it's a, a completely different way of, of... And quaternions were useless for about 100 years. Um, they were a mathematical curiosity. But now, who here has ever played a computer game? Lots of people. Quaternions power the graphics engine. Who has ever been in a plane and which has landed safely? Everybody. Quaternions are used in planes. And who has an electric toothbrush? Lots of people. So electric toothbrushes have a, an interesting property. They rotate around this axis and they rotate around this axis. And that dual rotation problem is solved using quaternions. So, even though it's something from 150 years ago, or 140 years ago, it still turn, it turns out that no knowledge creation is useless. Now, he wrestled with this problem for a very long time. So he was the official astronomer, or head astronomer, and he used to work in Dunsink Observatory. I don't know how many of you know Dublin, but this is North Dublin. And the walk to Trinity is about 11 kilometers. And he used to do this every day uh, after doing his night observation. And he would think about quaternions, or what he would call quaternions on the way. And the day he solved the problem, he didn't have a pen or paper, uh, which he was annoyed at himself over. But he did have his tobacco knife. Uh, this is Broombridge, which is over a canal in North Dublin. And uh, he got the solution as he was crossing the bridge, and cut it into the stone on the bridge, and then came back and wrote it down. Um, <laughs> And uh, he attributed the walking as the place that he had the time and space to allow his mind to roam free. And he has this wonderful quote. Um, nobody writes like this anymore, but uh, it's, it's wonderful. And here there dawned on me the notion that we must admit a fourth dimension of space for the purpose of calculating with triples. And this is the insight in, in creativity. An electric circuit seemed to close and a spark flashed forth. And that was the, the Quaternion equation. Now, a natural question is, will walking make you more creative? So there are lots of ways of, of testing this. So if, if uh, you come to a psychological laboratory that's interested in creativity, what they'll do is they'll pick up common objects, and they'll say, here's a little object. Uh, identify or generate as many uses for this as you can in the next minute. And some people will come up with two or three uses. Some people will come up with 50. Uh, there's a big variation in people's ability to generate alternative uses. Now, what, what Petzl and Schwartz did in this study was titrate the amount of walking that people did before they went to the laboratory. And what they found um, is in this task, if you walk prior to doing it, you generate about twice as many ideas as you would have done had you just been sitting. Um, so walking has some effect um, on your ability to generate ideas that spills over after the period of walking. 
more impressively, a, a Japanese group has done exactly the same study with people in their 70s and people in their 20s. And what they found is exactly the same result, except for one great twist, that people in their 70s are become, are generate twice as many ideas as people in their 20s, if they've walked. So the key to creativity, in part perhaps, is getting out for a walk when you have to solve uh, a problem. Uh, the room behind us is the Bertrand Russell room. And uh, Russell uh, is, has always been a great hero of mine. And uh, if you read his autobiography, you'll see that he walked lots. And prior to writing, uh, he would go out for an hour with a piece of paper, perhaps, and then he would come home and compose what he, he wished to do. And lots of other writers, Stephen King, the novelist, whom I'm sure you've all heard of, goes for long walks prior to, to writing any of his books, and he plots them that way. Wordsworth, the poet, and many others do the same. Uh, these are just control conditions. If you sit on a treadmill uh, without moving, you don't get the, uh, the effect. But if you walk on the treadmill, you do. So I, a treadmill desk could be useful. Now, it's not the case that all ideas that you get from walking are good ones. <laughs> uh, some of you know perhaps what I'm going to put up, but uh, maybe you don't. Uh, uh, but this was a really bad idea. So you, uh, you need to reality test your ideas before acting on them. <laughs> I say this with trepidation. <laughs> anyway, so how much do you walk? Uh, I mentioned at the start that children, uh, or infants rather, walk enormous distances, or enormous numbers of steps, two to 3,000 steps per hour. Uh, adults don't do anything like this, and we know this from uh, smartphone data capturing the, the, the uh, kinds of uh, steps that people make over the course of their uh, walking day. And what we see is enormous variability between countries and also between individuals. Uh, the country that walks the most is Japan. The average Japanese walks about 5,000 steps a day. Uh, the country that walks the least is Saudi Arabia, uh, with the US and the UK uh, in between. Uh, really, really uh, uh, quite uh, amazing finding. And the place that you find yourself has a, a huge effect on the amount of walking that you do as well. So it shouldn't be any surprise if you've been to New York or Boston. People in New York and Boston walk lots um, because they're compact cities and they're designed around the needs of walkers. There are other places, Atlanta, for example, if any of you have ever been there, dismal place uh, for walkers. There are no footpaths uh, once you get outside the, uh, the city core. Uh, and there's also a difference between walkable cities and, and the pattern of activity during the course of the day. So on the top right here, we're looking at the weekdays. In a high walkable city, you can see people walk in the morning, go out and walk at lunchtime, and then walk again in the evening. In a low walkable city, people walk out to their car, drive to work, walk around a little, and then drive home again, and don't do much walking. And in a highly walkable city, people walk lots at the weekend, and in a poor city for walking, walk little uh, at the weekend. So our mobile phones are really, really useful. And the truth is, none of us know if I was to ask any of you how many steps you walked last Thursday fortnight, how many of you could tell me? You can look at your phone, yes, or you can look at your wrist. Uh, but in the absence of that, you have no idea. We're not built to remember how many steps we walk, which is why you should always turn on uh, your walking app. Now, how many senses do you have? Most people will say, we've got five. Okay, there's an outlier. That's, uh, <laughs> maybe you have extrasensory perception as well. Uh, um, 
So this is the, the classic list that Aristotle gave us, the Aristotelian uh, five senses. And the answer is at least 11, or 10 or 11. And uh, some of these are ones that we're going to concern ourselves with. One is obvious, thermoception, our sense of heat uh, and sense of cold. It's independent of these other senses. And one that uh, is one that's around the place a lot now, interoception. This is the sense of what's happening inside our own bodies. Some people are really good at this. Um, if you ask people to, to uh, can they hear their own heart and count their own heartbeat, some people are really good at that, other people aren't. Some people are very good at describing the feelings that they have in their body trunk, others can't. But there are other ones, proprioception and kinesthesia. So I'm going to ask you to do a little experiment uh, on your kinesthetic sense. Can you all close your eyes and take your right index finger and touch your nose and with your left index finger touch the elbow of the other arm. And you're all brilliant at doing that to within a, a perhaps about a centimeter at the most. And this is because your body has a map, or your brain has a map of the parts of your body and where they all are, and you're not aware of it unless something catastrophic goes wrong, like you have a stroke, in which case then you lose uh, your ability to tell uh, where the parts of your body are. Uh, and this other sense, which I'm going to talk about now, the vestibular sense, uh, is very important for how we understand where we are in the world. Now, it's natural to think vision is the most important sense for navigating the world. And for those of us who are uh, happily uh, visually unimpaired, it does certainly appear like that. But what happens when you ask people who are blind uh, from birth, uh, who become blind in their teenage years, so adventitiously blind, and people who are normally sighted, to find their way back to an origin, um, will you find any differences between these groups? So over short distances, you can do what's called a triangulation task. So you walk a person along two le limbs, legs of a triangle, and you ask them to walk back to the origin. And you generate paths that look like this. Um, people are pretty good at doing this, but it turns out that people who are adventitiously blind, people who are blind from birth, congenitally blind, and people who are normally sighted, uh, now obviously the normally sighted are wearing blindfolds, are approximately equally good at doing this task. So what is important is not that you can see the world, what's important is that you've moved in the world and you have some capacity to measure uh, your own self-motion. And this is uh, done by a, a, an amazing system in the brain, the vestibular system, which is situated in the inner ear. So another little experiment. If you put your hand in front of you like this and shake it, you should see your fingers blurring, yeah? Now, shake your head and look at your hand. <laughs> see the difference? That's because the vestibular system subtracts head movement from the image that you're looking at. And it does it without you knowing it. Isn't that remarkable when you do that? Yeah. There's another way of demonstrating this, which I, I don't ask people to do anymore, uh, which is to push your eyeball. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, it gives you the, the, the same effect. Um, and it turns out, in addition to vision, this other system is just as important. So if you're blind and uh, you're trying to navigate around a space, you can't see the space. So the only trace you have is the trace you've made in your brain of your own movement. And that's what the vestibular system 
is involved in. And what it does is help create a GPS system in your brain, a sense of where, you're at, where you are. So again, another experiment. Uh, I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. Now point to the main door. Yeah, you're all in approximately the right direction. So you have a sense of where something is. Now, imagine that your back is at the main door, so you're facing out onto the square. Now, this is going to be a hard one. Uh, point to Holborn train station, or tube station. Ah, you can do it. Now, we're getting different estimates here. The point is, though, um, that when I ask you to position yourself in a place that you're not, so I'm asking you to imagine where you are, and then I'm asking you to imagine in that place where somewhere else is. What you have to do is compute a 3D map of the world. And we do this with great facility. Um, and the easiest way to think about this is that the brain has a GPS system. So the brain is able to do something uh, which does not depend on the specific pattern of steps that we make in the world. Oops, sorry, wrong button. So how do we know this? Well, um, going back many years, this is a, an experiment by Edward Tolman in Berkeley in California. He uh, wrote a famous paper in psychology called The Cognitive Map in uh, Rats and Men. Uh, they were all very sexist in those days. Um, and this is a, the experiment that he did, a very simple experiment. Uh, what he did was put a rat at position A, sit down here, and let it explore. And it would run into this open arena, and it would walk down this tube, make a left, uh, go straight, make a left turn, straight, a right turn, and get a piece of food over here. And he would let it do that. And um, the rat could do this. Uh, so it would learn this task very quickly. And then what he did was change the maze, so it became what he referred to as a sunburst maze. So instead of being able to walk straight, the animal found that this pathway was blocked off. And it still wanted a piece of food, which is over here on the, the top right. And what does it do? Does it attempt to make the same pattern of uh, body turns that it did in the past, or does it go reasonably directly to the food? And this is what it does. You can see the big bar there. Um, it uh, is able to figure out in 3D space how to get to somewhere directly that it has never been to before. And Tolman's argument was that we had to have somewhere in our heads a cognitive map, um, a map of the environment that we generate and create simply through moving around in the world. Um, and this is, is what he, ca he came to call the uh, cognitive map. Now, a number of years on, John O'Keefe, who's uh, here uh, at University College London, um, was very interested in this idea of the cognitive map. And uh, he put electrodes, uh, which are about thinner than a, a human hair, into this structure in the brain uh, called the hippocampal formation of a rat. And he had this rat run around a maze, and uh, he recorded what the, uh, the brain cells were doing. And what he found was really astonishing. Uh, he found that the cells in this part of the brain don't care what you're doing. They're not interested if you're sniffing, if you're rearing, if you're eating, sleeping, any of those things. They only fire when you're in a particular place in space. So he called these place cells. And it's now the, uh, recognized to be the core of the, uh, the so-called cognitive map. And O'Keefe went on to win the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago uh, for this discovery. This is a, an example of, of uh, one of these place cells. So um, what you'll hear is a kind of a clicking sound. 
And this is uh, the sound that, whoop, sorry, I don't know what happened there. Aha, okay. And you can, that clicking you hear is the firing of a single brain cell. And it's completely silent in all of the arena, apart from this location here. Is that not remarkable? I think it is quite astonishing. Um, a couple of years later, uh, an important aspect of knowing where you are is also knowing where you want to go. In other words, we need a kind of a compass uh, uh, in our heads to have a sense of orientation. Uh, another investigator, uh, Jeff Tauby in, in uh, the US, discovered something called head direction cells. So again, you're seeing a rat here exploring an arena. There's a little card here on the wall. And you'll hear nothing for a long time until the rat turns its head. Oh, sorry. like a compass and it turns out from brain imaging studies that have been conducted over the, the past 10 or so years that there are at least 11 different areas in the human brain that have these cells. Um, we have them in cortical areas all the way up here and we have them in deep brain areas all the way uh, down here. That's O'Keefe up there after uh, winning his, his uh, uh, Nobel Prize. Well, I guess yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, but the, the remarkable thing is that uh, uh, these cells do exist. So you have cells that code for position. You have cells that code for orientation. And uh, Maybrit Moser and Edvard Moser in Norway uh, also shared the Nobel Prize with O'Keefe because the other piece of the, the, uh, the puzzle that was missing was how the brain computed uh, distance. And they discovered cells in a part of the brain here, the entorhinal cortex. Uh, that fire according to the distance that you have moved in an environment. So there you have kind of the core of, of cognitive mapping. Position, orientation, and distance. And this is how we navigate the world. Now, just to focus on the human brain again for a moment. Um, there are lots of things that we can do that will promote brain health. Education is very important. Uh, the better educated you are, the less likely you are to succumb to Alzheimer's disease in later life, for example. Um, we should remain mentally stimulated. We should eat a low cholesterol diet. We should sleep a lot. Uh, we really undervalue the amount of sleep. Uh, and we should be socially engaged. People who are socially engaged in later life are much less likely to succumb to dementia than people who aren't. But one thing we can all do uh, reasonably easily is to move. So I want to describe a, a study in, in uh, humans in their early 70s, which is really quite remarkable. This is Art Kramer's group. And what they did was take a group of sedentary people in Chicago, um, all female, and uh, they got them to walk. They divided them into two groups randomly, 
60 were assigned to a walking group that he would go for a walk three times a week with two other people and uh, a physiotherapist would walk with them and the other group were just left alone um, and followed up and then a variety of cognitive tests were done, memory, learning, attention, all of this kind of thing and blood was taken from them and their the volume of this brain region that uh, O'Keefe was interested in, the hippocampus, which we now know in humans is, is centrally concerned with memory, was measured. And what they found uh, was that over about a 12-month period, the volume of the hippocampus in the group that move gets larger, whereas it continues to shrink in the group that don't move. And not alone that, but when you look at the performance of this group that are engaging in regular low intensity walking at this stage in life, the performance of their average 72 year old was much more like the performance of a 68 year old. In other words, a different way of thinking about this is that uh, it slowed or reversed the apparent aging of the brain by a couple of years. Uh, so late life gains in brain plasticity are entirely possible and they're entirely possible in the simplest way possible, um, getting out there and uh, going for a walk. Now, we've assumed that we should have a brain. Why do we have a brain? Uh, trees don't have brains. Uh, grass doesn't have brains that we know of. Uh, lots of things, flowers don't. So what, what problem does having a brain solve for us? Now, uh, this is a way of thinking about it. Uh, this is a, a tunicate, uh, also known as a sea squirt. And this is a, a creature that has a backbone, so it's, it's from the same animal class as us, the phylum chordata. And uh, you can see it's, it's that bone is extended across here, and it's got a fin that allows it to swim. And uh, it's a really, really remarkable creature because it does something really unusual. Um, so this is, it knows up from down. It, it has a statusist. This is a little ball of mineralized cells that tell its, its primitive version of a, of a vestibular system. And it has a mouth, uh, which has an adhesive property. And what it does as it gets older, it's something really unusual. It comes and sticks itself to a rock, and it changes shape over a period of a few weeks. And uh, it has a spinal cord still at this stage, and uh, has a stomach and all of those things. And uh, it gradually changes shape, and it ends up looking something like this. What has happened to its, its uh, primitive brain sitting here? Uh, spinal cord. Well, it ingests it for a meal. Um, it absorbs its own brain. Um, now, suppose you're a little bit sea squirty and uh, <laughs> you like to be uh, kind of Homer Simpson like. Well, is, what happens in humans? Well, we know actually a lot. Being sedentary is bad for you in all sorts of ways, but here's a really dramatic example of it. This is a study known as dry immersion. So this is a waterbed on the right, and what they've done is taken uh, fit, healthy males in their late 20s, and uh, obviously they're volunteering to participate in this, and they float in this waterbed. Uh, so all strain is taken off the muscle joints, uh, or the muscles in the joints, and they lie here for three days. They're measured in all sorts of ways before they go into the, uh, uh, the waterbed, and then they're measured at the end. They only get out for a toilet break. And this is what you see. After three days, muscle volume in the leg diminishes. The muscle strength goes down markedly. And what's no, a really important measure of muscle, muscle viscoelasticity. So this is the extent to which muscle can deform and then reform and take its own shape. 
or re resume its prior shape. These all go down. In these healthy male subjects, as a result of merely three days of uh, uh, being in, uh, in this weightless environment where they're not putting any strain on their body. Um, so sitting around and doing this is really, really bad for you. You do need to get up and move around. And at the age of 30, it mightn't seem so bad, but if you're 60 and you need uh, assistance to get out of a chair, that's really, really life-limiting. Now, let's just look at uh, an experiment we are doing in humanity. Uh, we are all moving to cities. So if you look at the great swathe of the planet, the majority of the population, as of 2017, are now living in urban regions. And this is a really remarkable experiment. Humans have never done this before, and we're doing it without planning. And we're living in places like this. And this means that our walking is going to be urban. Now, as I have said uh, in several places, uh, I love country walking, but I actually, if I'm honest, prefer walking in cities. I think cities are, can be the best of walking because lots of things happen in them. But I think our cities have been and continue to be terrible places uh, for walkers. Um, if uh, we go back a couple of hundred years here in London, uh, this is a, a great poem by John Gay, and uh, he describes the dangers of walking around London where chamber pots are emptied onto people's heads uh, because there was no public sewers. And uh, if you look at Georgian buildings, both here and in Ireland, you find boot scrapers at the doors. Why did you need these? Because you had to scrape the, you know what, off your shoes. Um, and these were very, very common. So in those days, and if you read Dickens, uh, he, he has great descriptions of night walking uh, around this, this wonderful city. Uh, but just how terrible night walking could be because you don't know what you're treading on and uh, what you'll meet. And I think our streets are still terrible for walkers in many, many respects. So this, uh, anybody recognize this city? No, I didn't expect so. This is Galway on the west coast of Ireland, where I'm from uh, originally. And it's a, a very beautiful city when the sun is shining. So that means about one day in six. Um, and it's a city that's trisected by a river. So uh, you can see some of the bridges here, and there are bridges over here. And it's a great city to walk around, but it's also a catastrophe if you're a walker. Uh, this is the new uh, junction that's just been built as one of the approaches to the city. And to get from the start point all the way around to the end point takes 14 minutes if you're a walker. It's been designed to regulate what pedestrians do in favor of cars. And this happens all over the world. Uh, I stayed in Perryvale in West London for a short while, and I want to give a shout out to this wonderful book, which I, th I think has been undeservedly forgotten, uh, Leadville by Edward Platt. Uh, in this book, what he does is something really unusual. Whoops. He uh, uh, parked his car, and he decided to go for a walk and talk to people uh, who are living along uh, the A40, M40, and uh, he walked and talked, and uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, people were saying. Who's going to walk from one side of the road to the other now? The only way you're going to get across the road is through a subway. They put the car first, the speed of the car, the convenience of the car, and if you haven't got a car, the whole system is against you. It's a shame because it could be such a nice place. And then bringing us back to England, would you like a cup of tea? Uh, 
And this is a recent picture of, of the A40. This is what you have to get across the road on. Um, the car has primacy, which I, I really don't think is a, is a good thing. Um, pedestrians should be the focus uh, rather than cars, uh, and cars are, our pedestrians are ignored in favor of motorists in lots and lots of places. Um, and yet, here's a, a, a ranking of, uh, by tourists of their favorite places in London. Do you see the A40 anywhere? <laughs> no, you don't. What you see are places that people can walk. People can congregate together. They can have coffee together. Uh, they can look at stuff. They can shuffle and amble about, and they don't get hit by cars. Um, like Buckingham Palace is now lovely because you can walk around the front of it. Um, there's, there's been such restrictions placed uh, uh, on cars. Covent Garden has always been lovely, or at least in my memory, again, because there are no cars around Covent Garden. Um, really, so the and Trafalgar Square, of course, has dramatically improved since the uh, traffic has been removed in, from in front of the, uh, the gallery. Uh, this is Sicily. Uh, I think Italy has some of the best and worst walking in the world. Um, it's really difficult to walk in the Italian countryside, uh, which is a, a terrible. But the old Italian towns, um, this is Tarmina, uh, can be wonderful places to walk. And you, you see this wonderful thing, the passeggiata, uh, at night in, or in the evenings in Italy, where people go to stroll to be seen. And I think we can learn an important lesson from this. And it's this, that uh, everywhere Town planners are put to look at what we're doing. They need to put mobility at the core of it. And the acronym I offer is EASE. Our towns and cities should be easy to walk. We should be able to get around them very, very easily. They should be accessible to all, not just people who can walk, but people who are mobility impaired, people who, are, uh, who have uh, uh, prams and buggies and other things. Uh, our spaces should be safe. We should segregate pedestrians from cars as much as is possible. And we should think about streets as being destinations um, rather than thoroughfares so that uh, they are indeed enjoyable uh, for all. So I thank you and I'll stop there. Thank you, Shane. Ooh. Hello. Um Oh yeah, this is on, right. Thanks Shane. Um, we are going to take a 10-15 minute break. Um, there is complimentary tea or coffee outside and maybe some biscuits left. And then we'll come back with uh, questions and brief comments for him. Shane's break book is available at the back. His brain's available here, but his book is available at the back from uh, the Word Bookshop and maybe you could get it signed. So thank you very much. See you back here in about 15 minutes. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the talk. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, different variants on getting from A to B where the uh, maybe you've used Google Maps in one way uh, or another way you've, you've followed someone but you don't really know the way yourself and, and then maybe the other way is you use a map like a paper map and because and, I find that um, uh, for that memory of the route to get into my brain I need to actually be engaged more than a Google map, following a Google Maps app. And I just would like to know what's going on there. Have there been experiments into that? Yeah, there, there have been good experiments. Sorry, no good experiments. Um, there have been many experiments that have said many very silly things, like uh, you're at risk of Alzheimer's disease if you use Google Maps. Which, <laughs> you know, people have claimed this, and you should just 
take studies like that and throw them in the bin. They're, they weren't worth doing in the first place. Uh, there's no reason to believe that that's true. Um, I, I, I can only speak from personal experience uh, because I don't think the data are any good in the literature at all, uh, which is that um, maps can be useless and maps can be great. Uh, Google Maps can be wonderful and Google Maps can be utterly useless. You know, when it says take a southwest direction and it doesn't have a compass and <laughs> there's no sun, <laughs> so you don't know where southwest is. Um, so I actually think the cognitive load imposed by Google Maps when you're walking around can be quite a lot because you have to disambiguate lots of things. But the thing to do is not to focus on what you're doing in that moment. It's when you go back there a second time, a third time, a fourth time, you find that you don't need Google Maps progressively because you've become very good at learning to disambiguate the the poor cues that allow you to get where you're going. So I, I don't think we should be scared of these technologies at all. I think we should embrace them. They extend the world that you can navigate in. <coughs> okay, there's a gentleman with his, with the blue, in the blue t-shirt had his hand up next. That gentleman there, yeah. And then there. But keep putting your hands up. Uh, question about the benefits you've talked about, about walking. Can you say whether any of those benefits are shared uh, by running or by cycling or whether they're, they're, they're constricted to walking? And a sneaky second part of the question, that the cause of those benefits is, can any of that be attributed to being outdoors uh, in nature with trees, with, it, with higher light levels, or is it mostly about the actual process, the mechanical process of walking itself? Yes, so that, that, that's kind of a complicated multi-part <laughs> question with a, a complicated multi-part answer. So we have good data on walkers and runners and the rate at which walkers and runners injure themselves. And the injury rate per million steps walked for walkers is approximately flat. It doesn't vary. The injury rate for runners per million uh, steps, for want of a better phrase, run, rises quite dramatically because runners do injure themselves uh, they get splints they fall they do all sorts of other things um, I don't like running personally um, but I like walking quickly um, and to get the maximum benefits from walking what you need to be doing is walking at at least 5.5 kims an hour preferably around 6 or 6.2 and you'll feel like you've worked out if you keep that up for an hour um, but I think if you like running, knock yourself out. It's, uh, go for it. Um, now, the benefits. Um, there is undoubtedly a benefit to human exposure to nature. Um, whether we run in it or walk in it, uh, we don't get enough nature in our, our daily lives. However, we don't need that much. Um, uh, about two hours a week of, of nature exposure uh, seems to be the kind of number that the, the literature has settled on as, as a reasonable amount of, of exposure to nature. But it, it's difficult to control these things. So, you know, compare the elephant and castle to Hampstead Heath. Uh, you're living on the edge of Hampstead, and it's going to be nice and leafy and very expensive, and you're living in the elephant, and it's not going to be so nice. Um, and the market has already priced for us the difference between those places, because living in, in uh, suburban greenery, even though we deride it, is... Uh, actually a much nicer place to be for all sorts of reasons. Um, so regular nature exposure is good, but it depends, again, also actually on the quality of the nature that you're being exposed to. So um, 
the nature that you see uh, or that you're exposed to needs to be bounded in some way. Uh, people will say when they're exposed to certain nature scenes where uh, it feels limitless, where there's no border, that it makes them feel lonely and empty inside. Um, so having a border of some description around the nature, having some variety in it is very important. You know, something that's homogenous, uh, you know, let's walk along in, in a golf course, for example. <laughs> uh, I don't get that. Uh, <laughs> um, whereas something that offers a lot of interesting stimulation, like walking around the streets of London at this, on a Sunday, which I think is great. Uh, <laughs> what if those streets of London lead to the elephant castle? Well, uh, good question. <laughs> no, you, again, you see, the problem is you don't know about causality here because you can't randomise the people and the places that they live because that kind of study would cost billions. <laughs> I know. No, that was a slightly supercilious question. <laughs> okay, there's another question. Just there with Steve, please, with the microphone, and then the people, wavy people at the front here, and then wavy people. I was just wondering about um, cognitive maps, because what I'm aware of is, um, in fact, walking here, I kind of knew roughly where I was coming. I wasn't quite sure, but we kind of do it by dead reckoning, which I think is cognitive mapping, isn't it? Because I'm reasonably familiar with the area. I didn't quite know where I was going to pop out, but it's close enough. But what I'm also aware of is that over time, if I don't come around here for a couple of years, my cognitive map's going to have faded, yeah. I think, of this area. I won't be able to kind of think, hang on a minute, which way's Hoban? Um, yeah, of course how, it will. How does that happen? Is it, and, and what's this kind of time scale, do you think? Uh, do, do we know? So the, the fading isn't a bad thing. Um, the, what you will find is that you can reinstate that map very quickly with two or three exposures compared to somebody who's never been here before. So that's fine. Uh, it fades for entirely natural reasons. You've got lots and lots of other things being written down in memory. And it fades because the, the most effective way to remember things is to retrieve them constantly. Um, and you're not doing that. So it will fade uh, because you're not engaging in retrieval. But equally, it's not anything to be worried about. Hi, my question follows on from the question about uh, the effects of nature in walking too. Um, I was interested if you've done any research or you know of any research um, that on um, the, if you've done any research or you know of any research um, on the effects of walking at a cellular level. So how that the effects of walking and the health of cells and how that the health of cells being um, a reflection of the overall um, Health, health effects of walking? Yeah, so I guess it depends what you mean by cells, okay? Uh, and cells by themselves are really dull and uninteresting things. Uh, no, they are, they are. You know, a, a, a single cell in a Petri dish is, is you know, it's an interesting thing, but it, it, by itself, so you, you have to talk about cells within systems. Um, and what we know is that um, if you do lots of walking, factors associated with enhancing plasticity in the brain are expressed so uh, there's a, in your muscle, for example, there's a, the, the wonderfully named skeletal myofiber uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, SMVEGF, is expressed as a result of walking. Uh, it passes into the brain and it facilitates the creation of new blood vessels. And it, it will only do that because there's new uh, connections being made between brain cells. So this kind of trafficking happens all the time. But I think we shouldn't th think about cells. I think we should think about whole systems. Um, and that's the context that's interesting, not the cell.
cellular systems. How about that? Okay, so there's some questions on this side. I'm going to keep gentlemen gentle in the back top over there. And then some others here. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, so when we talk about the, um, uh, whether it's cognitive maps or other cognitive effects of, of walking, the internal cognitive representations that we make to do this, uh, do we develop them because they have the same sort of primal uh, neurophysiological uh, spot as our other thinking tools? Do we develop them on top of our other thinking tools, like notions of planning and sequence and these types of things? Or are they, are they truly fundamentally neurophysiologically, they occupy their own sort of primal spot in the brain? Yes, yeah, so that's a, a great question, and the answer is that the, the brain is a jerry-rigged device that uh, the same brain region participates in multiple functions. So the hippocampal formation that uh, John O'Keefe recorded the, the place cells in um, is also centrally involved in humans in the experience of memory, but it's also centrally involved in imagining alternative futures uh, because it allows us to place ourselves on a timeline from the, the past into the future. So it does multiple things at, at a time. And people who suffer from uh, uh, amnesia that results from damage to the hippocampal formation can't imagine different futures for themselves. You should say to them, what are you going to do next week? Well, what I'm doing today. Oh, what are you going to do next month? What I'm doing today. Uh, what do you do in your holidays? Don't know what I'm doing today, uh, is literally the kind of responses that they will give. They cannot create uh, and imagine alternative futures for themselves. Uh, and this is because to imagine things, we have to remember things. Uh, and we forget that um, the active imagination must rely on, on memory. And in, in a very large way, or important way, that's kind of spatially organized. We, we don't imagine the world as a kind of a jumble of images. We imagine it with some organization. So the, the brain, or brain regions participate in multiple functions. Okay, so we'll come, we'll come to back people and front people and then we've got three here and then we'll do back and then we'll do a bit I'm in my 97th year and I had the great advantage of not owning a car <laughs> or even a mobility scooter. So my one method of getting to the local shops is on foot. And to go further afield, I rely on buses. Um, we're lucky in the London area to have a pretty good bus service, but they will keep closing up bus stops for the roadworks. And then you walk from that bus stop to the next one, and that one's closed as well. Now, I'm sure that all this walking is good for you. <laughs> you can have too much of a good thing. <laughs> um, hi, thank you. That was an interesting talk. Um, I wondered what your opinion was or any knowledge you have about the effects of uh, spatial, the, the development of spatial cognition for children today who um, some of us are finding don't have um, opportunities for much movement. Yeah, so the, 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 there's a, a great US study recently uh, which focuses on a paradox in, in child rearing. US parents are spending more time with their kids than they did a generation ago. But 
they're spending more time in the car. Uh, so the kid is seeing the side of the adult's face. Uh, and it turns out if you look at kids who walk to school versus uh, kids who are driven to school, especially over long distances, and you ask the kids who drive versus the ones who walk, the ones who drive don't know where they are. They can't draw a map of the world. They, they, can, they know they're in school uh, and they know their home, but drawing a route between the two is very, very difficult for them, whereas the kids who walk don't have that problem. Uh, and I, I do think we, again, have a, have a, a problem about how uh, we manage this thing with children, where we need to let them engage in much more free-range activities. They're safer now than they ever were, and we're more paranoid about them. Um, we think that there's terrible people waiting around every corner, and <laughs> you know that's not true. Uh, but kids do need to be allowed long periods of unstructured play in mixed-age play groups without adults present. Um, that's the conditions we grew up under in the, in the African plains all those years ago, and it's, it's a very good place for children to be now. Thanks very much for the lecture. I really enjoyed it. Um, I was just going to uh, uh, give you some information. You mentioned it would be great if there was this kind of transport system along Oxford Street that we could get from place to place. It's called the Central Line. And um, it works yeah, really well I, every I, two minutes. Yeah, uh, I, know, I know the central line. I've been on it just today, and it's horrible. Oh. Uh, <laughs> really? um, I, it's at capacity. And my point is that uh -huh. uh, we can have the central line, but we can also have surface transport as well. And we should have surface transport that's designed for well, people. Crossrail's coming along. going to be called this. Yeah, that's that's with the line. underground. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. Yeah, I've used it. It's great. No, yeah, come to Dublin. We have a wonderful Thank tram you. system. Yeah. Um, no, we seriously do. Uh, at, at Trinity, where I work, uh, the tram has pushed all the traffic off Dawson Street and Stevens Green and around the front of College Green. Mm. It's quiet, it's lovely, and the tram system is fabulous. There's uh, one in Manchester as well, I think. It's yeah, brilliant I've been as well. It's yeah. really good. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, this is not an either-or for me. I just think we need to augment the, the travel solutions. Mm. And, and I have been on the central line many times. Oh, good. Brilliant. There we go. Um, let me see. There's another question. There we go. There we go. Oh, thank you. Hello, my name is Dawn. And I just meant to ask, uh, I keep hearing that uh, the difference between slow and fast walkers, that fast walkers are more brighter, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I, 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 I think those studies are confounded by the fact that we don't know anything about the health status of the people who are, are walking. You know, are you walking slowly because you have an underlying cardiovascular condition? What you can't do is randomize the conditions that the people have against the walking speeds that they engage in. Uh, so it's only epidemiology, and you need to swallow it with a, a grain of salt. More yeah. Final or only in mice. Always have that in <laughs> brackets. Thank you. Thank you. That was a really good talk. I'm um, just curious. What's your favourite city to walk in? You should uh, have. I'm in it. <laughs> Actually, I, I really love London, uh, and I love walking in London. Uh, Dublin is probably my second. Uh, Paris, maybe Rome, maybe. But I, I think Dublin and London are really two epic cities to walk in. Um, so there you go. Yeah. Uh. Thank you. Now you have all had an opportunity to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you.
Thank you again for coming speaking on Sunday. There are flyers on the table outside if you want to find out what we're up to next, or the hashtag or at Conway Hall, or just look at our site. We're doing all sorts of hopefully thought-provoking things. You can get to us in many different ways. Uh, I want to say thanks again to Shane Mara.